Okay. Welcome to a joint production. <laughs> Potentially. Hey, all right. Of you talking with Greg, integral stage. And what I don't really give a crap because it's one of my favorite people, Layman Pascal. <laughs> yeah, we're on both or neither platforms now. I'm here with Greg, who I think is fantastic. And if I am to believe some graffiti I saw at a public restroom not far from Greg's house, he's a guy who solved most of the world's problems. So I've come to the right place for some answers. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. That's right. That's graffiti. It's not just in Virginia. You'll see that graffiti periodically. You'll see little iQuad coins and whatnot in other places. <laughs> uh, so I was thinking about this morning, I was trying to think what fundamentally is pathology. Okay. And then I was like, well, maybe like, oh, just etymologically on the face of it, it's supposed to be the study of pathos. I'm like, so what is that? I'm like, oh, it's things that make you go, oh, that's, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> that's broken. <laughs> so that, that's not a terrible way to think about it, but we'd like to get more specific and more comprehensive and more usefully intelligible about this. And uh, totally. I was thinking about the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which I think it proposes itself as a means to establish a common workable language for patients and scholars and therapists and neuroscientists. Yep. But it's gone through major revisions. It's Huge. arguably undermined by institutional groupthink, by yep. social fads, by the economic interests of pharmaceutical corporations. It seems to me that it's derived. Uh, it's taken new insights and data and combined that with some original categories that emerged from the work of early 20th century analysts. Yep. Uh, and the data is often hard to reproduce. Sometimes it's dubious in the quality of its statistical analysis. And those original analysts uh, significantly disagreed amongst each other about what they were talking about. 100%. So we've got a prominent, somewhat useful tool uh-huh. that is likely to be inadequate to provide the source material for a, a broader, coherent, multi-approach description of the, of the major types of phenomenon that a unified psychology has to address. Totally. A better, more integrated view of the theory and practice of diagnostics would be great, and we can be thinking toward that today. 100%. So this is wonderful, and uh, if there's anybody I want to talk about this with, uh, Lame, with your unbelievably broad view and integrated potential and capacity to follow a multiplicity of things at once, uh, which is necessary for this conversation, uh, it's great uh, to dialogue with you about this. So um, yeah, so let's just so people are, I'm sure they're basically aware, but we should, uh, there are a couple of key things to say about the DSM. Uh, it currently exists in its fifth uh, edition. Um, it stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's developed uh, by the American Medical Association and underneath of that, psychiatry. Okay, so folks need to be very aware. You mentioned the institutional dynamics. This is hugely important. And that is, is that uh, medicine manages health. Okay. Uh, and why is that important is because medicine isn't really sure on what its core identity is. Um, but you, if you think about medicine from a scientific perspective, which is definitely many people would, and its institutional identity, it very much potentially argues that it ties into biological phenomenon and the science of biology. Okay. Uh, and many people have argued, we can get into this more, but it's like, well, Medicine deals with broken biological things, malfunctioning biological things that cause difficulty, is, and then medicine develops its structure to try to do that. It's called the biomedical model, okay? It's not the only model. There's another model. There are actually several, but the other prominent model is the biopsychosocial model of health that informs medicine. So medicine itself has these different identities about, well, 
is, is its role to foster health overall, or is its specialty to foster uh, broken biology? Because other, you know, the priests and counselors are not medical doctors, they deal with health. So there's really, and the reason I say this is because then how we think about psychopathology or the DSM and diagnosis, is this really the root cause has got to be broken biology if it's a biomedical frame that you bring to bear? Or if you bring a biopsychosocial frame, then no, it wouldn't have to be tied to broken biology necessarily. And we never resolve this issue in terms of the basic nomenclature. Uh, so this is so that's the DSM. It, it, the other thing to note is initially it's just a sort of description of psychoanalytic phenomena that isn't categorized really in the DSM three R in 1980. I think it is really shifts fundamentally to try to become, bring behavioral science, reliability, validity, methodology to the taxonomy of the structure. Uh, and I think that's generally a plus, but just a descriptive taxonomy with no etiology theory, meaning the underlying causal structures of what's going on. There is no, in fact, it's explicitly just a theoretical. Of course, that's a big debate. In fact, what I just said has at least assumptions that can be, that frame what kind of categories it is. So that's a long rambling dynamic. This is a long area of interest yeah. of mine, but uh, those are just some reflections we can kind of get going on. Yeah. So at best, and uh, it's far from certain that it is at best, at best, the DSM is a subcomponent of a general um, field of diagnostics. Yep. Uh, I like you bringing up the etiology because the structural dynamic is really interesting to me. I'm, I'm going in my mind to an anecdote of <clears throat> years ago, a friend of mine brought me as pamphlet she thought she had self-diagnosed she got to this government mm-hmm. counseling pamphlet and so i looked through it i'm like oh my god this is me <laughs> right but then then i flipped the page to the next one i'm like oh my god this one is me <laughs> i start going through i'm like okay i've got all of these diseases yeah so that's improbable i don't think i'm uniquely multi-psychiatrically <laughs> deficient here so the other option is that somehow being relatively sane is like an orchestration or a symphony of pathologies. And I'm like, so what does it mean if I'm thinking that? Well, I'm thinking a situation in which um, if one of the instruments in the band stands out, that's a problem. If it fits in, it's not a problem. Mm. So it's possible that there's a structural framework in which um, modules which exaggerated on their own form some kind of pathological function actually form a completely normal function when they're not exaggerated or deficient. Totally. So, uh, you know, and that clearly fits in with a guy who's thinking about integration surplus as a yeah. key to health and sanity, <laughs> and also a guy who has no psychiatric diagnostic training whatsoever. Hmm. So I, I'm curious from you what you think is like, how do you go at a, a, a structural and etiological model of pathology? Right. Um, so actually, this was my first theoretical paper. Uh, I actually did, I think it got published in 1999. Um, and I got pulled into this when I was at um, uh, working with the University of Pennsylvania under Aaron T. Beck, who actually just passed away this week. Uh, so I'll honor that. Um, and I had already built my model, the tree of knowledge system, and I was starting to then utilize that as a fundamental lens by which I would see reality in general, and in particular differentiate what it affords is the capacity to really differentiate essentially frequencies of behavior that are taking place at different levels um, of complexification. Okay. So there was a big push in the Journal of uh, Abnormal Psychology. There, was this, there has been a theoretical concern within psychology about what is psychopathology, okay? Uh, and a man by the name of Jerome Wakefield 
uh, advocated for what became a pretty prominent model called harmful dysfunction. Okay, and essentially what it it argued is is that people have been debating a long time as are these natural events, these diseases seem to be sort of natural in some categories, like you get a heart attack and die. Nobody wonders like, hey, is that just, you know, oh, fine. It's like, no, that was a real problem. And I wish we could fix that, you know. And then they're all as high blood pressure a disease is, is, you know, that you really get into a lot of different issues, but he nailed, I think, and there's the, social construction issues versus biological issues. He sort of puts them together and says harmful, there clearly is a value-based uh, judgment, like the system needs to decide individually, within a dyad, collectively, societally, that this is a harmful issue, okay? So there's clearly a value judgment. Um, and then you decide that there is a dysfunction. Okay, relative to you need a natural concept of a natural function coupled to harm. What do we mean by natural function? Well, the part can be argued to be shaped by natural selection to serve as a pump so that they circulate the blood and then the nutrients and oxygen and everything. And if all of a sudden that functionality breaks so that the muscle gets tied up or there's a stroke and it can't do it, and then then that ensues a dysfunction so that the coherent integrated structure at the level of biology then breaks down cells stop dying the whole um, intersection of systems then fails to perform the flow of energy matter information that affords that complexification and it is also the case that that's associated with pain and other kinds of difficulties that we would any you know under normal circumstances it's a nightmare you then have the harmful dysfunction analysis of what a disease is uh, at its kind of core you know, those then become the prototype or exemplary frameworks. And that applies to a lot of different issues. Uh, you can then, you know, if you break your bone in your arm, your bone, well, we can, well, how, why is the bone structured that way? And yep, that's both heart's really bad. And it's an injury that then left a malfunction in your bone. And yeah, we, those are things. So it's a pretty good categorization of mental, uh, of, of, I should say, physical by slash really biological illness and disease. And then the argument was, this is, we're going to use this to apply for what are real mental diseases. Um, and certainly there are some categories that, of mental disease that fall under this pretty directly. And I don't think many people would dispute that something like Alzheimer's disease is a disease and a mental disease. Okay? Uh, we watch somebody unable to remember, unable to organize their thoughts after they die. If we look at their brain, there's tangles and plaques in the hippocampus. That's abnormal. That's a section of memory and cognition. There's lots of things that can potentially go on, but I'm just using an example. So there's a mental disease that's pretty clean and clear in relationship to on the continuity. Okay. But then the question is, is that a good category framing for the domain of mental? And the tree of knowledge then immediately argues, if you look at its cones of matter, of matter, life, mind, culture, mind and culture are different cones of complexification uh, than life is. Uh, and the argument that I gave is that some mental disorders are well understood as mental diseases because the primary sequelae do seem to fall from or can be at least tied causally to a malfunctioning biological structure, okay? We can hypothesize about that. But many of them are maladaptive patterns, okay? A maladaptive pattern is where the dysfunction occurs at the level of what I would call mental behavior, okay? 
So what's an example of that? Well, let's give a, a classic example that I gave is like around, say, depression and a vicious cycle of depression, uh, which I, in fact, I developed a whole model of depression called the behavioral shutdown model. Um, it says depression should be thought of not as a disease or not disease, should just be described as a state of mental behavioral shutdown, okay? And what that would be is, is, is what's actually happening is the system can invest in its and get return on its investment. It tries, it gets anxious and irritated and can't go. And so it just basically drops and elevates its negative affect system, pulls down its positive affect and sort of gets into a sick mode, okay? Now that makes perfect sense in many environments, <laughs> to be in that. Like if you're an abused spouse or you get tossed in prison or your child dies, there's lots of good reasons as to why you might find the system, its path of investment, unbelievably constrained, can't do anything, gets trapped, starts getting shut down. Okay. And I would then consider that there'd be many instances where the depression is a normal, understandable reaction. Um, at the same time, let's say you go off to college uh, and you're hoping that everything's going to be fine. You're going to escape. You get there. You're kind of anxious. Uh, you get criticized a little bit. You feel awkward. You hide in your room. And then all of a sudden, everyone else starting to make connections. You feel worse. And that makes you feel like doing less and less. And now all of a sudden, you're in a cycle of shutting down and avoiding. And the way in which you then cope, although you feel better in the short term because you avoided something, now all of a sudden, the long-term consequences are things are getting worse and worse precisely because you're just engaged in a normal adaptive kind of response, but it traps you in a behavioral cycle. Addictions can be framed this way, or many of them can be framed. Lots of different patterns of relating that then trap people in far from optimal scenarios that then cause suffering, but there's no broken biology here. It's at the level of adaptive behavior patterns. So I argue that a huge chunk of certainly what people go through psychotherapy are really entrenched maladaptive patterns that are clinically significant, but there is no way to think about this usefully or fruitfully in terms of broken biology, malfunctioning biology. That seems like it re it places a lot of responsibility on the analyst and the diagnostician relative to their perception of what a functioning society or functioning relationships are. Totally. Right. Because if they're going to make a value judgment about maladaption, what are they adapting to? Right. Yep. Is your society fucked up or are you fucked up? <laughs> That's a great question. In fact, in 1968, uh, Martin Luther King delivers a famous address to uh, the American Psychological Association. And, and he says, you know, you've given us a great word maladjusted, maladapted, you know, in some ways. But then he's like, to what things should we be maladjusted to? OK, um, and then you have to have this framework with regards to, yeah, there, it certainly makes sense uh, that we want to have, and what is health and what's optimal functioning. In fact, the seventh branch on the tree back there is the idea, is a framework for understanding what we mean by human well-being, because I was also, this is one of the areas, it was like, there's an enormous amount of complexity and confusion about what we mean by these central concepts, um, I'll give you another example about what makes this complicated. And, and, and basically, the field punts on this issue. You're bringing up a central issue, which is like, really, to make a judgment, we have to have a frame of what optimal functioning is, okay? My friend, uh, Waldemar Schmidt, who is uh, on the TOK Executive Society, he was trained as a pathophysiologist in, you know, as a, that's what is a professor of pathophysiology, but is always interested in human psychology. But he told me this story, which is really uh, goes right to your point, which is that 
when he was getting trained on the liver and the kidney and, and female reproductive systems, the first thing that he would learn was what is a functional kidney, liver, and female reproductive system. So that would become the template by which you then judge, oh, this is what a dysfunctional system looks like, because we have a reference for what a functional. You open up the DSM, and all the only judgment is never specified. It's just normative. <laughs> it's a deviation from normal, essentially. And do you mean normative functioning? Do you mean like distributionally normative statistically? What the hell do we mean by normal, typical, functional um, there is no articulation in the context of psychiatry, really, about what normative functioning is. Other, there's a psychodynamic diagnostic model, uh, the psychodynamic, diag I think that's what it is, psychodynamic diagnostic manual. Um, the, uh, and it actually is interesting because what it starts with is different descriptions of human functionality across emotion, relationship, identity. And says these are what kinds of this kind of normal into high optimal functioning capacities for individuals. Um, and then it's deviation from that that we are going to then really diagnose as maladaptive psychodynamic process. Um, so they at least do acknowledge and afford a particular picture of what, you know, healthy psychodynamic functioning looks like. And I absolutely think that is central for us in the therapy room and for us societally to think about what's a healthy person. Um, look like and what's a healthy society and when you have an unhealthy society and a person reacting to that how do we make some decisions lots of people have talked about that but there's virtually no institutional um, understanding agreement structure uh, on it it's a really really central question all right so we've got a sort of general sense of the utah framing of how we approach pathologies in general um, now I think it would be fun to dive into some specific ones. Um, right. what am I thinking of here? Like, you know, I love retro psychopathology, like anything okay. from the twenties, it's <laughs> clearly outdated, but it's also always like kind of fresh and provocative in some yeah, way. Yeah, sure. And one of my favorites is character analysis by Wilhelm okay. Reich. Yeah. That is where, and that's, he's first elaborating for other therapists, the correlations between Freud's diagnostic categories and different styles of posture and facial tension, muscular yep. rigidity, inhibited breathing, all that stuff. And he relates that to the idea that you can't possibly psychologically integrate material whose stimulation is being rejected by your physiological clampdown. Totally. But the, the model gets ambiguous, I find, when he describes schizoid and schizophrenic types. Mm. And his take on the schizoid, which also then shows up later in Alexander Lowen's bioenergetics and things like mm -hmm. that, is the idea that the, the schizophrenic has a healthy ability to experience streaming and stimulation and connections mm -hmm. and ideas, but they process it as if it's coming in from the outside. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. perceived as subjective. So in some ways, they're healthier than the average person, mm -hmm. but their processing is inverted. It comes mm -hmm. at them yep. rather than experience this part of themselves. So that's... That's one provocative, outdated take. Yep. Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. what's a, a general, what's a good you talk understanding of the schizophrenic, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, this is a, okay. Uh, right. Well, that's an easy question. Let me feel that for you with a lot of um, so right. Schizophrenia is an unbelievably complicated, you know, uh, dynamic. And and it is not an area I've uh, of psychopathology that I've uh, dove into enormously um. The first thing that I will say is this, is that we, that at a, just at a taxonomy level, it is useful to divide schizophrenia up into two broad categories of positive and negative symptoms, okay? 
positive symptoms are excesses of things that are outside the norm, okay? And then negative symptoms are restrictions of things that you expect to see in other people that are absent, all right? So two classic examples of positive symptoms are delusions and hallucinations, okay? So a delusion is a very unusually likely to be true belief uh, about the world in a particular way. Um, and a hallucination then is the perceptual experience of something that nobody else from the outside or if we were taking a video of something, okay? Uh, so for example, I had, I treated a woman, just to give one example, I've treated a number of individuals with schizophrenia. Uh, she had a fairly unusual hallucination slash delusion that she had been infected by bugs. They lived in her system. She had a haptic delusion that she could feel them crawling in. And then she also had a visual uh, hallucination that occasionally they would come out of her and they would be flying around. Uh, she also would fear that they would get infected with other people. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the UTOC structure, um, what it would then say is let's differentiate what delusions are from hallucinations and the different kind of cognitive processes that are operative. Delusions then can be found in the system of justification. So that's the propositional narrative meaning making system. Okay versus a um, confusion in relationship to the perspectival system, mind two versus mind three. And of course, it's not surprising that they would often go together. Um, but what's actually, if we then, then think then about, okay, well, what those are additions. I think that the early you know, character formulation idea that yes, they, they misconstrued from coming to the outside, that's definitely a reasonable element. Um, I think more modern things on terms of, say, like predictive processing uh, fundamentally are then looking for hypotheses to reduce surprise and the ease with which they then generate a hypothesis, clamp down and project the frame to see the pattern in a particular way. And then don't somehow there's a feedback loop that prevents it from then being normally you see something, maybe that's what it is. I mean, and I'm not talking necessarily about conscious hypothesis but I'm talking about tracking the way in which you would build a model of something and track it. For some reason, it's very loose in making hypotheses and affording and being confirmed with very limited data and then being held in perception as though it was conformed to that data. So there's a, there's a constant process of oscillation. Um, and so for me, I think that probably schizophrenia as a cluster is going to be a multitude of different um, breakdowns in particular kinds of processing there, was, there are classic cases of schizophrenia, which would be somebody who's a little odd, okay? And then when they're during in a young adult, you know, place out of a period of six months to a year, um, go from being odd, what we call schizotypal, into a full-blown schizophrenic um, episode, okay? Where all of a sudden they're putting, you know, classically, you know, uh, aluminum foil hats on their head, because they feel voices in their head that they then interpret as being beamed in from aliens. So they then put a, you know, and then, uh, and then at that level, when you see a classic break in schizophrenia, my argument would be that the mind to consciousness system uh, that affords a particular broadcast function for integration has gotten its thresholds or in, in wiring or whatever process. And we don't, I and other people would understand this a lot better than I do, but basically there are essentially likely malfunctions in the process by which it generates and holds on to hypotheses um, and the ease with which then it generates justificatory narratives on top of those um, gets very, very 
loose and open and then conclusive and then freezes with those particular delusions on top of that. So that's a that's sort of a brief description of a classic sort of schizophrenic picture. And I would generally consider a classic schizophrenic picture like that to be probably uh, mental disease-like. And what I mean by that is, is that my understanding of the way humans generally adjust to the world um, can give rise to lots of different kinds of pathology, like borderline personality disorder, et cetera. But to watch somebody go from in a six-month period to that kind of breakdown probably is going to involve some pretty significant neurobiological pathologies. Now, that's not to say that the soul psyche isn't playing a huge role um, in the way that gets organized and manifested, but that's probably not just stressors that's going to cause that kind of shift. Uh, yeah, it seems like we can look pretty obviously if there's accelerating change, you know, this person's doing this mm -hmm. more and more and it's interfering with their lives. That's kind of obvious. But this is also an area that really opens up ambiguous spaces between what's healthy and not healthy. Right. I'm thinking of the, you know, bugs on your skin. A lot of people take drugs and they have that same experience mm -hmm. because I mm -hmm. think we do see visual specs. We do feel weird itches on our skin. And we probably have a, a constantly operating interpretive system that says, be aware that creeping things could unexpectedly be on you. Totally. So that's a valid interpretation, but it's getting exaggerated. And then we look at the exaggeration, but we often don't look at the opponent processing, which is what's missing that normally keeps those exaggerations in check. That's intriguing and kind of makes it ambiguous what's healthy or not healthy. I'm thinking about what you said earlier about considering the function, like the heart you know, and it's very obvious somebody has a heart attack, but we also seemingly have to be pretty fluid and open going forward because somebody will come along and say, you know what, your heart actually can't pump all that blood mm. diaphragm and your movements doing it. What your heart actually does is generate a torus shaped electromagnetic field around your body. Mm. Like, okay, so <laughs> we've got to be loose about what the function is. Totally. And this is where, okay, I'm going to make a slight deviation from what's comfortable to a lot of uh psychologists because i'm thinking of my mother okay and uh, she would tell me stories that the older women in her family in the 50s would be like you know if you told a psychiatrist that you would be lobotomized or get mm -hmm. electroshock and years ago you would have been burned and like about voices and intuitions sure, sure. and structures that she would see and i would joke to her that you know, if she revealed her actual inner life to a state-sanctioned diagnostician, then that fact alone is proof of mental illness. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, <laughs> you know, joking aside, how does the diagnosis of pathology make room for possibilities of positive engagement with subtle, imaginal, or even properly spiritual phenomenon that might be ambiguous and troubling and undigested, but, but normal and healthy? Totally. And this is where you need, in my estimation, you need a particular, you know, effective model mapping of psyche or whatever frame we would give. So for me, um, one way of thinking about psyche is to think about sort of the neuropsychological sort of imaginal informational semantic structure that processes and coordinates the system. Um, I place it in a vertical structure of the lowest layers is the body. And John Vareke and I talk about you know, pleasure, pain and tracking, fight, flight and all of that. Then you move up into the heart and then the heart I know is sort of the relational attachment system. I track that with the influence matrix. Um, then you imagine stuff through sort of deliberative, say, right brain uh, processes and justify shit. 
through left brain processes. And then you're aligned with larger tasks and then you're in, in relationship to other people and also then in relationship to past. So you have to have this sort of this distant past, horizontal, vertical kind of relation, all right? And for me then, if we can map these kinds of issues, then we can basically say, and I would argue that biology does this with all the systems that we have, you know, sort of like, what is the heart doing relative to the kidneys? What kind of communication are they engaged in? How's the digestive tracking working? And at the organismic level, there's all the system interface. We can certainly look at an isolated system and then wonder, but we also need to put it in context. We need to nest it in particular context. So if we have a particular structural sense of way to track, say, the bottom layer of the psyche, whatever, understand its developmental history, understand how that gets you know, juxtaposed in with your heart, with your image, with your narrator in the relational world. If we have a model of, oh, what is a coherent, integrated, pluralistic sense of the vertical integration, and how do we actually shine a light on things and then relate to them? So I'll give an example personally, okay? So I have um, an unusual obsession, although it hasn't been activated for a while, but it got activated. The unusual obsession was when I was going around to my friend's weddings, they'll probably love to hear about this when I was, you know, when my friends were getting married, okay? Um, and when I was at a wedding, I would get an obsession, and by obsession simply means an intrusive thought that you're not really related to your ego. It's like, where the fuck did that come from? And it would be when the bride was walking her way down, uh, the here comes the bride, that I would bounce out of my chair and linebacker tackle her. Okay, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was the that was the a very very strong image and and some impulse, although I never really was worried that I was actually going to do it. But for a while, every wedding I would go, and the less I knew the person, the more strong the image was, okay? And basically, and what I tell people is that if I didn't have, if my justification error was like, oh my God, I'm a fucking freak, you know? It's like, this is really my true self. This is really what I want to do, blah, blah, blah. But what I saw it as is, yes, I think there is something about me that is sort of anti-authoritarian, you know, trying to flick off the culture occasionally, you know, I have a particular structure, the, the raw randomness of human behavior relative to as I try to analyze it, the part of my heart that just wants to see it chaotic, that you never predict that some totally normal professor guy would hop out of and just linebacker tackle a bride that he didn't know for no reason other than to say, predict that, <laughs> you know, is a, is a, so, but the, to me, the issue is like, Hey, what is the, what does that actually mean? And then what's the healthy holding environment for that kind of thing? I don't know that we, we have, you know, I have my own notions and you talk gives a particular notion. And I can tell you about kind of what the holding environment for coherent integration is and what I then see as maladaptive kind of issues in the short and long term, uh, how they get entrenched, and then what is malfunctioning related issues. Um, so for me, that's basically just a signal from my unconscious, uh, but I then afford the opportunity to narrate. Obviously, if I literally ever did that, if I ever released that, the consequences would be really serious and there'd be a lot of maladaptive <laughs> shit to deal with. Um, but I, 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 that could have become an obsession that was actually a disorder. But the way I related to it, and then I share this with you know, my students, is like the way I related to it makes it very different. So there's definitely the thing, there's how it's metabolized, how you justify it and how you relate to it. Um, and this is a very, very complicated network of considerations. Yeah, the um, the ideation is one thing, and the the value, you know, the, the perverse aesthetic pleasure of it is something <laughs> else. And then the holding environment is the third thing. I mean, I I think of 
you know, when I was a kid, there was always this discussion about people saying, well, the, the devil told me to kill those people or something like that. Right. Right? And there's always the question like, yeah, but why did you do it? Like, that's a different <laughs> question. Yeah. Why did you just do something a voice tells you to? Mm-hmm. That's a bit weird. That's another mm-hmm. issue. Right. Um, but here's a, um, what's another? Okay. This morning, this actually happened. I was out to get mm-hmm. my, some cheese by my favorite Quebecois cheesemaker. They didn't have any. Mm-hmm. So I'm driving mm-hmm. home this morning. And I'm trying to feel what's important to me about pathology and diagnostics because mm. I'm going to talk to Greg. And my own thoughts burst in. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's totally, it's like, hey, Layman. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you know that song about the guy who kills the sheriff, but not the deputy? I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, there's a good chance that guy was trying to mitigate responsibility for double homicide. So he wasn't telling the truth. But what if he was? I'm like, okay, I'm listening. If he was telling the truth, then there needs to be another song about the man or woman who killed the deputy, but not the sheriff. I'm like, okay. And it's like, and if no one's going to write that song, then maybe you have to. I'm like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> but there's a, there's a slippery grandiosity to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe only I can be called forth to do this thing that no one else can even see the need for. Totally. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about megalomania, grandiose ideation, psychic inflation, which is something that can happen for no good reason, but also oh, something oh. that can happen for great reasons, like you're a genius or your mm-hmm. kundalini fluxed into your cranium or something <laughs> like that. So what is um how, how does megalopsychia? Uh, stand what when is sure. it of diagnostic significance and when yep. is it a reasonable thing <laughs> right well that's a good, that's a good, that's another great question uh so let's talk a little bit about at least two immediate uh issues that come to mind in regards to this so one is bipolar disorder okay uh so and then the emergence of mania um so let's talk a little bit about what that is um so in terms of your animal experiential system you basically have a gas pedal and a brake pedal Gas pedals, positive emotion, energy, desire, acquire. The other is break, avoid, uh, negative affect because it's threat-based, okay? And this basically is in what I call the experiential system. <clears throat> Animal embeddedness um, gets into, you know, fight, flight, appetites, things along those lines. Are, are those, sort of interrupt you there, are, mm-hmm. do you, are you thinking of those as, as very closely tied to parasympathetic and sympathetic or as distinct from that? Well, that you can basically do it this way. You can do... Um, you do, it's a two by two. Okay. So there's a approach, pleasure, avoid pain, active, passive. Okay. Arousal and shutdown. So most of the parasympathetic sympathetic is an arousal, active, passive regulator. Okay. And then it's an active, passive regulator on a, a desire active because you can get, you get all jacked up on the active side. You could either be, oh my God, I'm super excited or, oh my God, I'm terrified. Okay. So those are both active. Uh, and then the shutdowns is, hey, um, you're really relaxed. You got what you wanted. So thank God, goal, a- activation, accomplishment, go smoke a cig, you know, you just got laid or whatever, you know, okay. Or shut down defeat. Mm-hmm. So you actually create a two by two, uh, which gives a very good model. It's a circumplex model of affect motivation. All right. And then basically you do two by two approach, avoid active passive. You do active approach. That's desire. Okay. Active avoid that's fear, anxiety. All right, we can talk about fear and anxiety. They're slightly different concepts. We'll just yoke them together for now. Then you go down and you go active, uh, 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 active avoid is here. And then um, that's active, no, passive. That's why I got screwed up, sorry. So passive pain is depression, okay? Loss, sadness, you can't do anything, so you shut down, okay? And then passive uh, good or approach is relaxation, contentment, all right? And then you can see they're opposite. So 
Fear and contentment are opposites, okay? Desire and depression are basically opposites, all right? And that gives you, and this, and so that's the, that's kind of the energizing motion, emotional structure, two by two structure uh, that the body in terms of its complex adaptive energy dispersal is organized around. All right. So now I started on this because of the whole bipolar dynamic. All right. So in classic bipolar one, essentially what you have is normally when you get active, <clears throat> you see something, you, you expend your energy, you work hard. You know, you get your goal and then you drop into passive because it's a constant dialectic, okay, between expend and then come back because you need that dialectic. Well, with bipolar, essentially, and actually epileptic drugs actually teach Trump, some epileptic drugs treat bipolar. It's an epileptic positive feedback loop on the desire, at least classically, meaning you get something and goals will trigger manic episodes. You get something and then you want to do something else, okay, rather than come back to baseline. It's like, oh, my God, I want to do more of this. I get this and I get this, I, you know, and then all of a sudden the desire possibility of what you can accomplish expands way beyond. And you can go, you can track this in a level. It's called hypomania, mania phase one, mania phase two, and then mania phase three, which basically then back into a crash. Okay. Um, so when you're hypomanic, you, fit, you, you contrast your past capacities and you have all this energy and, and all this uh, seeming, um, ability to acquire goals and resources you jump up a notch in terms of your um, sense of importance and your capacity when you tip into mania one phase one then the this felt sense kind of loses potentially some of its grounding and feedback so you really just basically start to see yourself as capable of doing almost anything um, and you your risk reduction your risk analysis goes way down and you're basically feeling kind of like superman uh, you know, in gambling and sex and spending money, there are no consequences that you can't manage. And it's because you have this unbelievable energy for desire acquisition. Um, and then you then in mania phase two, you get delusions about just I am, it turns out I'm Jesus Christ, I'm the next incarnation, or I'm Superman, or I've been chosen, or I have this unbelievable superpowers. And then you behave very dysfunctionally, uh, you know, shit hits the fan, and people are like, Oh, my God, you're crazy. And then they lock you up, <laughs> or you get all depressed. But you can see from that energy level, you can see this whole like, whoom, you know, I'm just super energized. I can acquire stuff. I have this felt sense that I have all these powers, it's the opposite of neuroticism in some ways. So there's that. The other dynamic that you can clearly see is sort of a relationship between what I call the blue line on the influence matrix. Now we move up into the heart. The heart seeks relational value and social influence. And it can try to do that vertically. It can compete with others, either directly or indirectly, see themselves above them. It can connect horizontally like love and then defend against that oppositely in hostility. And then it regulates a degree of uh, um, you know, involvement on what's called the green line or autonomy freedom line dependency. So the, this blue line is an architecture of rankism, essentially. It's the way we tend to see ourselves um, in relationship to others on skill capacities intuitively. So are we above others? Okay. And then not, not infrequently, and especially perhaps in this culture, in fact, I would argue that um, oral indigenous cultures really work, work to regulate blue line dynamics, but our culture works to out, exacerbate it. Essentially, then, it's these, you want, the justification system, in most instances, when it wants to justify it as being as good as possible that the data afford okay, um, in, on these kinds of issues. So most people think they're above average, <laughs> okay? Um, but the structure by which that thing can then turn into a just an egoic justifier 
and then basically then turn into narcissism. So narcissism is the fundamental architecture where the ego sees the itself on the blue line. And I would argue that our former president, you know, in the United States, former president Trump was a classic processor in this way. I called it the Trump algorithm, which is I'm better than you. If you love me for that, I love you back. Okay. If you challenge that, I'll show you why you're wrong. And if you criticize me for that, I will punch you in the face. Okay. So everything, the Trump algorithm is I win, you love me. I win, you love me. That's <laughs> the entire structure of, the, of justificatory behavior is fundamentally funneled through that uh, structure. Um, so that's an example then of really sort of attachment and identity driving this sort of sense of grandiosity. And so you like, hey, look at, I'm a, look at my car. It's a Corvette. Did I tell you I went to Yale? Just a constant flood. And they're usually they're pretty unempathetic. Um, individuals. We can talk about other ways, and this can go into like socio associate paths that are slightly different or other kinds of dynamics. But really, the mania and the narcissism are sort of two main sources for this megalomania, grandiosity, I'm on top of the world, no matter what you say kind of dynamic. So there, there's a region, you know, there's some kind of expansion that might be good for people as long as it's still coupled with uh, reasonably accurate calculations and relational capacities. And totally. there's kind of two ways to go beyond that. And one is a self-reinforcing cascade and the other mm -hmm. one is an interpretive lock-in of some kind. Okay. <laughs> what else? I'm trying to remember. Like, what are the <laughs> other ones? In those old books, what do they say are the pathologies? Mm -hmm. Oh, here's one. Okay, here's some gossip about psychotics I heard from a Lacanian. Okay. Uh -oh. <laughs> I heard mm -hmm. that the psychotic has um, improperly installed the name of the father, which is to say the symbolic function associated with authority or the cultural potency to which the mother turns away from the child. And so uh, lacking security in that primary signifier of the world map, mm -hmm. the psychotic experiences the world as semantically unstable. Mm -hmm. So he or she, as a result, is always kind of self-medicating by imagining shadowy forces or some obscene mm -hmm. controller who's willing to go all the way to establish coherent control over the world system because that's what they need. Mm -hmm. Uh, and these fantasies, you know, conspicuously display the caricature of a eternal agency and mm -hmm. the unreliable of the social habits that are structuring the world and this desire to like go rogue and explode and call out mm. the system as either mm -hmm. unstable and dysfunctional or about to be organized mm -hmm. by some obscene force. Mm -hmm. uh, is that just Lacanian crazy talk? Uh, or is that part of what you understand psychosis to be as part of a coherent multidisciplinary psychology? Um, if you just reduced it to say that, oh, we know that that's the answer, it's Lacanian crazy talk. Okay. Um, so to me, the basic issue is the, the deep problem with psychoanalytic structure is that they way overshot on um, unconscious predetermined psychic determinism, okay, where that all the symptoms then would be then interpreted through a particular lens, so that even things like morning sickness uh, in women were then interpreted as aggression to barf up your baby because, it, you know, you're sucking your energy away in a particular way. I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty insane. So that is the, the structure. I, I basically argue this. So, so Freud looks at the justifying system, the egoic justifying system, and then actually, he totally sees what I would call the subconscious attachment 
heart system brilliantly. Um, and indeed, if he had stayed there, he, we would have stayed inside of science. Okay? And indeed, the entire influence matrix attachment and what I would call psychodynamics stay pretty close. Like, for example, that, that Trump is compensating the way his father judged him and puts himself up to compensate for underlying anxieties, and he has power needs and power dynamics to manipulate people, even if his justification says, I just love everybody, we can see that, no, scientifically, that's not the case, okay? I mean, we can see that underneath there, there are these subconscious dynamics in his need for relational value, social influence, the way he manages power, love, and freedom, that regardless of how he justifies, I can totally map the functionality of attachment. Okay. What Freud did is that he went from the subconscious level one analysis into the deep unconscious, what I would call level two. Okay. And essentially he's trying to get into the body. He sees life and death, then sex and aggression. Okay. Um, Which is really cool and important, but his shadow, his flashlight for understanding those dynamics, unbelievably romantic and artistic and fascinating and interesting and partially true. (laughs) There's a definite partial truth. But then to say scientifically, we know that that is what a psychotic, I mean, psychotic is an unbelievably broad category, okay, of a wide variety of different things, you know, like I do acid and I feel kind of psychotic. Why is that back because I have father issues? No, (laughs) I mean, they, but the way I manifest my acid trip is undoubtedly going to be having to do with my father issues, okay? So as these images and fluctuations emerge, the fundamental conflicts and regulatory structures at the perspectival, what I call mind to conscious level and justificatory mind are structured for equilibrium and they defend against certain things. And absolutely the way that the flux happens, the symbolism is definitely shaped by that organization, even if there's a lot that's say going on at the neurobiological level. So we absolutely, in my estimation, many, many psychotic episodes have to be understood by essentially psychodynamic and maybe even psychoanalytic symbolism in wrestling, okay? And it's useful to pay attention to that often for the client just for sense-making, to interpret that we can now say with any degree of assertion other than just a convenient fiction that that's the dynamic that drives this. That's where my scientific side said, mm, no way, you don't have any, you don't have the um, epistemological validity and all the variables that you're talking about to say that with any kind of like scientific confidence at all. So that's where I would, you know, kind of re- interpret that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to go on to psychopathy, but I've, I've got a question that's coming up for me, which is, you know, a lot of our, uh, a lot of our structural weaknesses and or shadow material seem to get provoked by interpersonal engagements. Sure. Right. And, and we're, we're lucky if that tends to only happen with your intimate partner in a private space. And you're not so lucky if it spills over into public space. Totally. <laughs> but uh, in a you talk framing, are, are personal and impersonal simply two domains in which our shit gets brought up? Or are those two distinct types of shit? Like, is it, are there different problems interpersonally or is interpersonal just another place where your problems emerge? No, there's definitely different uh, domains of problems, okay? Uh, so, for example, um, many cases, I would argue, of obsessive-compulsive disorder, all right? Um, uh, like, that would be a classic example would be a, a germ phobia, fear of dirt, or whatever. You then constantly are washing your hands, okay? I would see that coming out of basically the animal structure of maintain. You know, these are little safety mechanisms that we have available to maintain territory, maintain cleanliness, and then they just basically glitch, Okay, to make an interpretation that that's an interpersonal phenomenon about control and about other kinds of things, 
possible, but there's no reason to say that isn't just a, you know, I mean, if you're freezing cold, you're just cold. The body's cold. It's not like, oh, my cold mother is really the source. No, you're freezing cold. <laughs> if your system wants to get clean or has then glitching about safety, checking kinds of issues, that's going to be very impersonal. Okay. Um, so I certainly don't think everything should go into relational dynamics. That said, um, then you have this whole heart system and the vast majority of what drive people into psychotherapy and nowadays, in my estimation, are internalizing conditions uh, that can be understood as what I call triple negative neurotic loops. Okay, A triple negative neurotic loop is the is negative events that happen. They get triggered by negative feelings. Then the ego gets involved and then starts justifying, hey, those feelings themselves are bad. Whoever caused them to be bad, you get into a blame self, blame other battle, okay, around an attachment system that doesn't feel known and valued and secure and is trying to defend against that and regulate that. But the processes by which then it does that traps the self in uh, unproductive ways of relating to self, relating to others, relating to the world. And a lot of that then is driven by the self-other relational representations, the internal working models that we carry with us, okay? Uh, The last Utah dissertation that I supervised was on borderline personality disorder. Might have mentioned this in other contexts, but basically it was like, hey, how do we understand this fundamental structure? And the argument is, is that, well, people are born with high-level trait neuroticism, because that's a disposition, not born with, but they're dispositionally predisposed to that. They get into a family structure where there's a lot of character armor defense, a lot of difficulty validating, a lot of difficulty processing, and creating an optimal holding environment. This person comes in with a high vulnerability, so their strong emotions powerhouse the system, and then everybody blames and defends, and there's no capacity to metabolize that. And then that creates an identity as they shift in adolescence as a broken, fragmented identity with really strong needs for power and and submission, uh, love and hate, freedom and dependency, and, and a fundamental felt sense that you're about ready to fall into the abandonment pit, so you're constantly defending against it. Uh, huge amounts of psychopathology that that we see that are these maladaptive, cyclical, vicious relational cycle dynamics at the level of affect, heart, justification, trauma history, and then brought into the current structure. That's probably basically the you know 80%, 70% of walk-in outpatient psychotherapy can be kind of framed in that kind of context. I don't know if that answered your question, but that- Well, you know. it makes me think about the borderline condition, because I think that's one of the most- I mean, people report it as one of the most problematic conditions, but also to the lay person's ear, you know, they're not really sure what's being discussed. It sounds like it's between two other conditions, or maybe Mm -hmm. that's just my adjacency thinking. No, Um, actually, actually, the uh, so there's it's a very complicated word with a particular history. You're absolutely right to bring your adjacency. Why else would you have that term? It's a borderline in between shit. The actual history of the term is a psychodynamic, like most of our psychopathology language, and actually it these first category of big picture category, which I wish we would bring back because I think it's a valid category. It actually speaks to some of the things we've been talking about was the distinction between psychosis on the one hand, the large class of psychotic problems, which is technically defined as a genuine break from reality. So a psychotic condition is when the person is responding to reality in some way that is non-normative, out of touch with the convention of reality and, you know, it definitely atypical across a wide variety of different domains. So that was psychotic. Then you had neurotic. Neurotic were individuals that were suffering, but their, their contact with reality was not dissimilar, but they was just dominated by insecurities, negative affect, sensitivities to relational dynamics, et cetera. 
Okay. And then when the psychoanalytics started, we, they started to do psychoanalysis with the neurotics. Okay. And you get on there and if you know original psychoanalysis, it's actually the whole idea is you actually are pretty withholding. You just interpret. Okay. It's a very, it's pretty high level ego demands. Really. You, you want to go in there. You're really vulnerable. You start spilling your guts and the analyst basically just occasionally reflects an interpretive thing back to you. And you then have, and the whole idea was that then the withholding analyst then brings forth the underlying urges, childlike, et cetera, um, of the, or that's gets, you know, in the first five years of development, and then you project that onto the analyst. And then, you know, then you gain insight and then you could see what you do to project. And then where it was, let ego be. Um, and then you now have a capacity to at least shine a light of understanding. And then apparently we're all fucked anyway from a psychoanalytic perspective, but at least fucked with insight is better than fucked with not insight. And so that's the structure. But to get to the point, then you, what you had was a subset of individuals that come in looking kind of neurotic, okay? You get them on the couch and they would decompensate instantaneously into almost a quasi-psychotic state. They would rage at the, they'd be completely so dysregulated very quickly that you would never want to treat them. So uh, you would see them as basically neurotic, put them in an analytic context and they would go quasi-psychotic. So they lived in the borderline space right. between neurotic and psychotic. Um, and then you were not want to treat those individuals with psycho psychological uh, so you're dealing with this person who um, from an early age exhibits high neurotic tendencies and they're in an environment that exacerbates rather than solves that to the point where they form an identity around that and that identity is uh, regularly or easily susceptible to moving into a quasi psychosis totally where the okay. strong projections of the internal working models of the past onto the system create very extreme emotional, unregulated, re erratic responses that are quite dysfunctional and, and sort of difficult to make sense out of and feel very weird from the outside perspective. Exactly. Okay. I am, I'm not usually impressed by people who want to explain to me the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths, <laughs> but I, I do think it's interesting to make a distinction between people who are, um, underdeveloped in their ethical and interpersonal intelligences mm -hmm. versus a person who might be genetically or neurologically predisposed to have no conscience mm -hmm. or be relatively indifferent to ethical intercoordination mm -hmm. between people. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up on the West Coast in BC, so I paid a lot of attention to Dr. Robert Hare. Of course. Uh, and uh, <laughs> never was happy with his assessment tools, <laughs> which seemed mm -hmm. clunky and dismissive. Mm. So I'm much happier today with a a richer notion of the antisocial spectrum and yep. the possibility of the pro-social psychopath harnessed by a loving, rewarding social environment. The argument that some people might even do better if they scored slightly higher on a sociopathy scale, that maybe we inherit genes for hunting and war where we're a little bit indifferent to village life and more relaxed in violent conditions. So I like the complexity of all that uh -huh. and the way it uh -huh. problematizes the condition. At the same time, there's a great book called The Wisdom of Psychopaths. And at the end, the guy goes in for uh, intracranial electromagnetic destimulation of parts of the brain that are underperforming, seemingly, mm -hmm. in the sociopath. Mm -hmm. And he is basically sociopathic for a period of hours afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not hard to argue that the condition is, is pathological. It's an inadequate neurophysiological, neuropsychological activity in certain areas. So. Yep. I mean, that's a that's a pretty broad spray over the topic. What's your take on the antisocial personality disorder, Greg? <laughs> Greg um, so I definitely want to differentiate antisocial personality disorders from 
psychopaths. I some people want to differentiate psychopaths from sociopaths and antisocials. I use psychopaths and sociopaths interchangeably. We can talk about what you know. I've seen a couple of differentiations. I've not been super thrilled with. Okay, um, but here's the you talk vantage point. Uh, let's do antisocial first. Okay, uh, an antisocial personality if it, again is, is basically it's a shift. Um, a combination of a couple of things. So at the heart level, <clears throat> it's a, it, it's basically evolves in the influence matrix. You have the quadrants of upper right, which is, Hey, you're secure. You're bounded by power, love, and a balance of autonomy and independent and, and uh, dependency uh, lower left. You're that's abandoned, uh, injured, low social influence, low relational value um, around that is a shame submission kind of dimension. Like I am pathetic. And then a hostile, angry towards other, hate, contempt of other. You made me this way. You're going to, you know, and then usually either a hyper-dependent or counter-dependent strategy, uh, whereby dysfunctional attachment actually is erratic between hyper-dependent and uh, the disorganized attachment and, and counter-dependent. Okay. So what do we see with antisocials? Basically, we see people getting channeled into what's called the self-quadrant, all right, of strategy, uh, whereby it's a very competitive dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. People will undermine you. If you try to play the game of socialization, you will be taken. Um, and so you take an anti-socialization attitude, like I'm not going to cooperate. Um, I see, and, and I work with a lot of people, like in, uh, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania in inner city Philadelphia, quasi-gang scenarios, lots of just anti, really think about it as anti-socialization, dog-eat-dog, very competitive, usually low conscientiousness, okay, pretty impulsive, a very quick need to defend one's honor, um, a, a distrust of society in general. So I'm not going to value what other people need. If I, if I can take something, fuck it, I'll take something. What's the point? There's no, so you get a justification and an attitude. Does that person have, um, have some options, has some freedom to take that interpretation or another one? Or is that interpretation that sort of necessary description of something that's already going on inside them? Um, I think there, well, I mean, I, I think that the, you can think about this in terms, there's some flexibility here, especially if you, you know, individuals in different, this, the antisocial potentially in different contexts, you know, a lot of this then is the socialization process into antisocialization. <laughs> so at the level of, you know, the architecture in a different system could well have um, cultivated, I think the heart architecture of an antisocial basically is primarily socialized developmental experiential. Not to say there's no genetic tendencies towards, say, disagreeableness and low conscientiousness that will prime that. But choice, at least at the level of, obviously, there's very limited choice, like, okay, I'm going to get up. You know, like I say, do I, can, tomorrow, can I get up and become an axe murderer? No, actually, I don't think I actually have that choice. <laughs> Maybe I'll tackle a bride. We'll see, you know. Um, but, you know, so, like, can you wake up one day and basically, oh, well, you know, I don't want to do this. We would have to have lots of things that would afford that transformation. But the antisocial, as far as I'm concerned, does essentially get socialized quasi into that position. The difference with a, uh, the, the socio slash psychopath is on what's called the red line of affiliation. So the red line in the heart structure, the way affiliation works, if you look at, like, uh, the you know, neurobiology of altruism, okay, um, in, in sort of is the affiliation basically means to join with other, okay, to share fundamental interests with other. So we go around and we attach, um, we see the other as very different or very similar to ourselves. And then as we get affiliated with it, we see their interests as our interests, okay, 
So for example, I, you know, if I'm loving father, my kids are sick. I feel sick when they feel sick. My system actually will literally blur the representation of myself and the loved one and basically create static. So their pain is my pain. And you internalize that. Most individuals, in fact, humans, I really want to emphasize, most individuals have this deep capacity, okay? When I was six, you know, I'm definitely very much not a sociopath. So I'm six. I saw some of the advertisements for suffering kids in Africa. I went up, you know, my parents weren't around. I went up, grabbed my piggy bank and said, dad, mail this off to Africa, you know? Uh, And I basically would say that my capacity to feel their suffering and then I have so much and I didn't really get socialized in that. I didn't do that because my dad would then say, I'm so proud of you. At least I really don't think so. It's just, I could see their pain. I feel their pain. And then am I really just motivated to remove my own pain? That's a whole nother issue. But I'm pro-social in the sense that I internalize their interest. And that's what's fundamentally different with the socio-psychopath, okay? The capacity then, indeed, why you can then scramble it with the brain is basically like, no, you're, I'm, I, I'm cold to the other person's pain. It's a very different thing. I can see that they're in pain and cognitively even describe that that pain. But the pull to let that pain is my pain. And now I want to do something about it. It's totally gone. Okay. Um, and then functional psychopaths can then just get around with contingency. It was like, well, okay, I don't really care, you know, <laughs> but if, hey, I get more shit, if I treat other people nice, so I will do that. And that's what a sort of, you get socialized to, based on contingency. Unfortunately, a number of people are, have this not only genetically, I think you're predisposed, but then if you're traumatized in a particular way, then you dissociate from that, then you resent the, uh, the, dis, the um, indignant, dehumanizing, whatever the abuse was. And then you then flip it around and say, well, actually I enjoy power over people. Uh, to then, and so then if you get a power hungry sociopath, those are the most dangerous characters because then basically what they just find pleasurably and hedonistically enjoyable is to take somebody, drop them in and just watch them in whatever torturous situation you might imagine and be like, oh, isn't that, isn't that fun? Um, and those are the criminal mind characters that are, you know, particularly <laughs> egregious. Well, as, long as, as long as we're in that dark territory, uh, there's a theory, I think I first read it in a book called um, My Life Among the Serial Killers. by the the major and kind of the only female researcher in the field during the Mm -hmm. 80s and 90s this idea that serial killers are not necessarily all sociopaths just Mm -hmm. as not all sociopaths are serial killers that there's a specific unique pathology a set of symptoms an escalation pattern um i've joked that it's limbic fusion by which Mm -hmm. i mean to imply that uh attack eat fuck kill run away are not well differentiated if Mm -hmm. one fires they all fire leading Mm -hmm. to some catastrophic activities that the word evil is legitimately used to describe what what's your sense of the serial killer is it a pathology is it a subset of something else how do the uh how do the utah gods marshal their armada of diagnostics toward this <laughs> right um i i've seen that and this is i don't have enough uh refined knowledge to decide whether i'd make but but what you said is very consistent with the you talk frame. So the the sociopath and somebody like Ted Bundy, classic, I would argue, basically a sociopath. So he's playing the fucking game, okay, with other people, all right, um, and never really has the capacity to empathize, other than just play a game, try to elevate, gain control, has enormous amounts of rage, enjoys the process of killing, but doesn't and is just the per, kind of a structural person that's not attached to that feeling at all and my guess is really didn't feel any guilt or whatever he's just playing a fucking game so he's dispositionally detached from the interests and pains of others and enjoys 
fucking around with people at a power level in just a totally self-centered way. So that would be the sociopath. But then you have other individuals who are would basically, you could certainly argue, you know, uh, you get the energy kind of structure of what you were saying in the animal body in relationship to that. And then the phase structure around like the urge to be a predator and to kill and to, and to have this whole kind of complex of predation in relationship to that um, would be a very different architecture. So then and now all of a sudden you basically are, remember, we are predators, right? Um, and the idea that you have an urge to be a predator in a particular way from sort of the animalistic structure and that basically that urge can't get integrated with the normal heart function. Um, but then you get these unbelievable urges and you release them in a particular context. You actually go home and you do care about other people. You try to repress what the hell you did, um, but it's a compartmentalized embodied urge structure that would be then different than the you know standard everyday sociopath who wouldn't care about anybody. So that would be one way in which you'd have the compartmentalized predators uh, versus a sociopath would not be a, um, inconsistent at all with a Utah kind of structure. Um, when we colloquially say that someone's hysterical, we, we tend to mean they're having manic fits of laughter or worry or insistence that are coming too quickly or too frantically for interpersonal sense-making. Etymologically, this term is related to hysterectomies, yep. <laughs> right? which means uh, a lot of people have either assumed that we're either dealing with displaced reproductive excitements yeah or that maybe this is a false category deployed to demonize normal female arousal and angst yep it's floating uterus i think is the original <laughs> etymological term <laughs> one, of, one of the most fascinating things i've heard is this idea that hysterics are they're not always having hysterical fits but they're always uh, promising it and probing people that they kind of use uh, seductive innuendo and threats and the possibility of going out of control as a way to provoke other people to see what's inside other people mm -hmm. because they don't trust that they think there is possibly a threat hidden within the other mm -hmm. um, what's your say what's a hysteric <laughs> right well there's um let's just we there why don't we just do dsm and then we can go back and decide whether or not we yeah, also please. want to apply it to like what freud saw in some of the hysterics so and from a Utah perspective, they're histrionic personality disorder, okay? If you look at the personality disorders through the Utah perspective, essentially what I do is I, I basically say, okay, I apply the, um, most of this is identity, emotion, and relation. And then we can see the trends in many personality disorders through um, the influence matrix, okay? And what that basically means is that personality disorders are going to find themselves um, sort of having character armor relation in a felt sense of low relational value, low social influence, um, deep-seated issues around attachment originally, okay? And then in, as the, some of the early psychodynamic, Karen Hoare and I, basic, this creates a fundamental basic anxiety. And then there are particular kinds of identity relational strategies, at least in the typical prototypes that people get channeled into as a function of trying to navigate this, you know, defense, and then you get rigid interpersonal strategies. So we talked about a narcissist. So a narcissist compensates in this way and develops a hyper high blue line structure and says, oh my God, I'm so perfect. And Trump's an example of that. 
if we flip down, avoidant personality is essentially the polar opposite of that, which basically defaults to, I'm going to submit, I'm completely inferior, I have no capacity, and I will then run away from any kind of thing because I'm such a loser. So this is the default loser strategy versus default winner strategy. We talked about antisocial, okay? So antisocial is like, fuck you, I'm not going to rely on you at all. I have no real need, you know, uh, sense that you will take care of me. So I'm going to get sort of counterdependent, hostile, competitive, dog eat dog. Okay. Then you get uh, the opposite of that as well, dependent personality. Oh my God, at least I'll identify one or a group of individuals I totally need to take care of. I'll subjugate my needs for them and have them. Okay. Another strategy is the high green line strategy of not counterdependence, like I'm going to compete with you, but counterdependence, I'm going to completely distance myself from you. So I'm not going to care at all about you. The root, I would argue, of core schizoid personality is a complete attachment detachment. Like, I don't understand why anybody has any intimacy at all. So they fundamentally, they're, they have, and this is just a negative absence of need. Now, whether that's compensatory or genetic or both, et cetera, but it's just like, I don't care what other people think. I live by myself and I do what I, and I met a few schizoids. They would almost never come into psychotherapy on their own. I met some in prison, et cetera. They just feel completely no need for any human contact. Now, the, what's the opposite of that? Histrionic, okay? So the histrionic personality constantly needs to be the center of attention, okay? So it's a just, there's an enormous need to, hey, what about this? What about this? Well, I'll tease you and drunk, blah, blah, blah. And then you go histrionic narcissist, which then gets you into Hollywood, okay? So histrionic is like, hey, what can I do to show you all of my particular capacities and, and gra- get, gather my one-upness and never be, you know, be an influencer, in relationship to stage, and then I will, you know, whatever I can to be the center of the party. And then there's histrionic hysterical, which goes back into sort of those dependent and avoidance, which are, oh my God, this horrible thing happened, and this horrible thing happened, can you believe it, and blah, 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 and a constant, you know, on stage that there's an intense vulnerability. Um, so that's essentially the way I would do the characterization of modern histrionic. It's an unbelievably strong attention-seeking, they're pretty shallow, so they just come out with all of this potential intimacy and emotionality and it's really basically an in performative instrumental display you try to get underneath that and they're like they don't know who they are because they're compensating a lot and this is a performative kind of way to maintain connection uh, but it's actually their deep souls they're very confused about what it is so it's this shallow performative dance in a particular kind of way and then it can go like i said competitive narcissistic or um under hysterical histrionic um, I want to pick up on a point that, you know, I, I threw out a couple of ideas about classical interpretations of the hysteric, and I think it comes up in a lot of different diagnoses. There's a sense that there's, where is the energy coming from? And maybe it's being displaced from some other area. Um, I, I like the Greco-Armenian philosopher Gurdjieff, and again, this is a 1920s model, for some reason, <laughs> those fascinate me. He talked about wrong work of centers, right? So okay. sense, I'm not familiar like, with this, but uh, um, so, okay. Uh, sort of like chakras, quasi-independent okay. subjective systems, intellectual, mm-hmm. emotional, kinesthetic, sexual, etc., and okay. that they all need to be exercised and educated and integrated. But before that, they have to be disentangled. 
So mm. ordinarily they're taking each other's places, mm-hmm. kind of like an internal competition dynamic. Uh-huh. So we we run sobbing from math class because it turned mm-hmm. out we were trying to calculate with our emotions instead of our intellect. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. people are going to church to moan and convulse and dress up for their neighbors. And you're like, okay, that's your spiritual activity, but you're treating it like it's your dating activity. <laughs> so there's, there's all these right systems yeah. are getting in each other's way and parasitizing each other's functions. Mm. It, from a you talk I. You know, is there any evidence that uh, systems can actually steal energy from other systems, or is that just an intriguing metaphor that humans fall into a lot? Um, that, that's a really good, excellent question. I certainly, definitely think that there's cyclical rhythms and energies in particular kinds of systems. I mean, look at your daily circadian rhythm. Okay, so the idea that you basically have a body system that's operating in a particular so you wake up, you're in the middle of the day, your cortisol systems are regulating all that, go to sleep, etc. Okay. Certainly, I've recognized in my own libido systems, the systems will get, oh, get all activated. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, when I have that energy. And then all of a sudden, you know, and I notice that I'm now 50. It's like, that's different than I was 15. <laughs> you know, there's a different energy there. And when it was 15 and it carried all these kinds of energies, it would leak into all sorts of different kinds of, no pun intended, um, structures. Okay, so absolutely, the the energizing aspects of these then influence uh modes you know so i would generally think about these vertical layers body heart mind you know ultimately spirit okay and the coherent integrative vertical alignment across history in relation if that's not the case then you're going to have certain kinds of activation that's going to create disequilibrium and then the conflict between those kinds of things are going to be uh, central to understanding psychic functioning um so that's a, at a general level the answer is yes um in terms of at least the way i would structure the understanding of the psyche and indeed, I like uh, internal family systems. So, um, you know, it's probably a basic variant in relationship to this, is, which is, I don't follow it religiously, but I definitely follow the idea that there are different modes of being that we have, you know, sort of an inner child, we have protector modes, we have healthy kinds of modes, we clearly have a persona, uh, we've got different kinds of things that we're kind of navigating. When the inner families all getting along, you know, each system has a particular stage, they get validated in particular kinds of ways, they play off of each other in fun opponent ways. It's like, oh, okay, hey, I'm a professor here. And then I come home and, you know, date wife, you know, night wife and blah, blah, blah. And then your father, and these different modes are operating. When you're not really, when each mode is sort of like, only getting partial as needs met. And then, and this is what we said with borderline personality, the modes fight against one another intensely. Okay. Uh, and then if you're thinking about, well, cyclic rhythm, you get activation, you express that, you know, even at the level of a cell, the cell, okay, active impulse, and then it releases that. And then it returns to baseline around that. So the idea that you get charge and then release, and then that energy is dissipated through the system because it actually needed to express something in a particular way. Um, and then that needed, then that has its influence as it carries. And then when it subsides, it returns. I mean, a basic orgasm is a pretty clear example that we can do that uh, at multiple levels. So the basic architecture of that seems very reasonable uh, to me. Um, the specifics and then really understanding and understanding in general and then understanding it in specifically, it's going to be a lot of creative, you know, and I mean this in a positive sense, creative fiction building is like a narrative story that actually can kind of make sense, but to hold it to a high epistemological standard, like a scientific assertion, that would probably be, you know, much more questionable. Uh, we have today um, a sense of these basic traits, right? We say, oh, someone's high on neuroticism. 
But uh, the old-fashioned approach was to say there's a neurotic character type, uh, and they're similar and they're a little bit different. I think everybody sort of thinks of a character Woody Allen plays in movies, <laughs> right? Or or a kind of self-sabotage routine. We all the, the person who can't get an erection because they keep worrying about whether they're going to get an erection or not. <laughs> totally. Right. So there's this sort of high-level cognitive loop problems where our attempt at self-adjustment keeps sabotaging the thing we're trying to adjust. Yep. What is what what is neurosis from the Utah view? Beautiful. Um, well, it's something I want definitely want to bring back. Uh, and you're absolutely right. And Utah is actually very clear on this issue that there's a distinction. Uh, we want to make a very important. They did it a long time ago. Personality, you know, should it mean your character on the one hand? We can talk about what that means and temperament on another. Okay. And then the Big Five came along and it was so successful. That's and the idea that there are these big five, dis, you know, temperamental dispositions, you can do ocean with it, you know, that's openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, neuroticism, okay? Um, and what are these kinds of things? And we can, and so from a Utah perspective, um, we want to understand that across development and say by adolescence, and certainly you can see the temperamental patterns before, but we'll say by, it's definitely through it, but behavioral genetic, but I also believe it socialization, experiential process. There's debate about this, but I would argue that this is the case. And then by adolescence, you sort of settle, okay? Um, so let's, the easiest then to start was just trait neuroticism. So N, one of the big, what is that? Well, remember when I was saying in the body, you have your gas and your brake, okay? Or another way of saying that is your positive and negative affect system, all right? So essentially that system can, um, operates dispositionally at various levels of idling. So how high does your car idle? Okay. How high does your negative affect system idle? Okay. So if you're high on trait neuroticism, which by the way, is probably the single biggest factor that brings people into psychotherapy is just basic trait neuroticism there, which basically means you can look, the core of this is depression, anxiety, and general negative affect distress. Okay. Then you get vulnerabilities to shame and guilt irritability, hostility, and then a self-conscious critical looping on top of that. These are the facets that are identified in a big five disposition. And the essential answer is because they're sitting on a very sensitive horse. It idles high pretty, so they're more annoyed and than other people. So they feel self-conscious about that. When something comes in, they go up faster, they stay there longer, and it's harder to get back down. So that's the way it operates. So if you're high trait neuroticism, that's the, the deal. And then it's difficult to regulate. You feel self-conscious. Am I weak? Am I vulnerable, et cetera? And if people don't, aren't taught how to ride that horse, they're very vulnerable to neurotic looping. And in fact, I wish that people could identify these horses early and validate, figure out a healthy, I, you know, the whole model is how to healthy emotionally metabolize that. So that's trait neuroticism. Character neuroses gets back into what I was talking about, the difference between mental disorders and diseases. Um, and that is their entrenched maladaptive patterns, okay, whereby the ways in which people get activated and then the ways in which they respond have short-term understanding functionality and maybe historical learning functionality. But when we place this response in the context of an individual's goals, the consequence is deeply problematic, okay? So then a classic example here would be like, you know, an alcoholic. So somebody feels self-conscious, um, not, life's not going really well. When you have a drink, oh, you know, the, the system says, oh, and you then negatively reinforce because it, uh, it takes away aversive feelings and you disappear for a little while, okay? And then if you drop into that and your system then craves that, 
then that escape, unfortunately, doesn't solve any of your problems, okay? But unfortunately now adds a significant liability in terms of, you know, empty calories, in terms of damage to the liver, damage, you know, behavior patterns, et cetera. And now you have a maladaptive entrenched pattern uh, that prevents you from reaching fulfillment, that reciprocally narrows you into a dead-end strategy that makes you feel more and more vulnerable, that only makes you invest more and more in this kind of defensive pattern, only to leave you feeling more and more unfulfilled. Uh, so the character neurosis is the maladaptive patterning uh, activated usually by defense of negative situations, negative feelings that then trap you into maladaptive structures and sort of dysfunction relative to potential. Trait neuroticism is the disposition of negative affect as a core experiential you know, part of the human mental system. I can't tell you how happy I am when people have answers to the questions I bring up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good, man. There's a few things that make me happier than make a layman happy. So this is a virtuous cycle. See, this is a virtuous set of maladaptive. <laughs> Positive addiction. Uh, uh, there's, uh, we talked a little bit about depression earlier, and I want to come at it again from a slightly different angle because I've heard from some people in organizations that do a lot of brain scans mm -hmm. that the same sets of verbally described and behavioral symptoms can be sort of like convergent evolution. You can get the same sets of these things out of different types of causes. So when you look at the brains of depressed people, some of them might be underperforming and some of them might be overperforming in the sense that they burn themselves out doing even trivial tasks. Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do we make sure we're, we're looking at a category and not sort of generalizing a number of different categories that just have similar symptoms? Totally. Well, this is a, you know, and, and I applied, you talk to depression. In fact, this is the first um, construct uh, that I really looked at through a Utah lens. Um, and, uh, you know, the first thing I said is, is that we apply this, um, we have to ask, well, what, what is it from our institutional health perspective? And then we get in this battle of, is it a disease? Is it a problematic reaction? Is it a normal reaction? Um, and so that's a big problem. And then the you talk through behavioral investment theory in particular, which basically says the core of behavior is work effort relative to return on investment. Okay. And then if you expend work effort and you can't get return on investment, then the idea that you would restrict the desire expenditure and shut the system down makes very good sense. So that we would have this potential like Seligman's dogs. Um, when he locked them in and shocks the thing, he induces a particular, what he calls learned helplessness, but you could just call a system, a shutdown system. The system collapses. When they put rats in pools, they swim all along. And then how long do they get to, they basically sort of freeze because they can't swim any longer. And so they just try to then float. And actually antidepressants on rats are successful when they swim more and more, even though from a perspective, <laughs> okay, you can't, you'll never get out, but you know, but if you swim more and more, the antidepressant is seen as a success. It's like, but from a behavioral investment perspective, I don't know that that's rise at all. Okay. So that's an interest. And by the way, in Sullivan's dogs, one third of them would never get depressed. So the low neuroticism, high extroverted people are very, and that's a true as dogs too, that those systems will generally be resistant to shutting down. And there'd be pros and cons in what's called a frequency distribution of these kinds of behavioral times of strategies, I would guess, as to why we see this distribution still in, in virtually all mammals and certainly in humans. So then we basically say, okay, we, we need to understand then that the depression is a category 
It's a low well-being category by definition that's then defined by the system shifting. <clears throat> if we're talking about a dispositional structure of depression, then it's going to be high negative affect, low extroversion. Across, and if you have this as your sort of two trait dispositions, you'll carry a low grade depression with you. <clears throat> that's the nature of it. Okay. And that's going to look, should from a unified theory perspective, look in the body structure differently than somebody whose you know, wife left them and they're completely crushed. And then they're, that will be a slightly different picture. We want to then understand what's operative in the shutdown. We understand what the structure of the individual is. We want to then understand what's the history and then this trigger in relationship to it and how they're kind of adjusting. <clears throat> so that's to me, and that gives rise to the idea that depressions may be normal reactions to significant losses that need to actually be held and metabolized. And then the appropriate, the shutdown is congruent with this and makes perfect sense. The depressive disorder, which is a mallet, very understandable, but not necessarily a shutdown. And then there are depressive diseases. Certainly you can get vascular shock, uh, uh, strokes, essentially, uh, especially in the left hemisphere, which is more positive affect, leaves you a little bit more you know, negative. So that would be like, yeah, there's actually literally malfunctions there. Um, there. And I actually believe in what's called melancholic depression. There are states where that shutdown gets so fundamentally pervasive, the entire system is just dysfunctional. I mean, it's just in a sick, dysfunctional state to try to respond to a melancholic person in a melancholic depression, like a quote, normal person, you know, that's ridiculous. Okay. So what I would then bring is a fine-grained analysis of this process of shutdown through these particular kinds of lenses, and then explore the processes of which the categories, and then utilize that to hypothesize around what kind of brain activity would we expect in which regions, what would be over kind of brain activity and under. So there will be a certain kind of dopaminergic drive system that's almost certainly going to come down. Okay. There will be a self-conscious, you know, threat-based system uh, that would like, I'm going to be defeated. It's going to be ineffective. I'm going to sh especially people with shame-based depressions, that's going to prefrontal cortex. That's going to perhaps get on a real cycle. Cause what is that doing? It's justifying, don't take responsibility. Don't take action. There's no point. You're a loser. Submit quickly. So just we'll get into a loop to keep that system justified and shut down. Um. Talking about depression makes me think of manic depression. And at, there's a part of my brain that easily goes to a cynical place about this. Like, oh, mm -hmm. you're manic depressive. Like, you're happier sometimes and not so happy other times. What a unique problem you have. <laughs> <laughs> but there are a number of these uh, double-headed diagnoses, right? Sure. There's manic depressive, there's bipolar. What, what do you make of these sort of, uh, uh, of bidirectional diagnostics? Right. Well, well, I mean, the old term of manic depression then became bipolar, and then there's these different shades of them. So, in fact, the the most um, the lowest shade is what's called cyclothymia. Cyclothymia is basically moodiness. Okay, where you really basically do seem, you know, more than most people. You have good times and euthymic times, and you drop into negative times, but you don't meet any of the real criteria for then bipolar two. Bipolar two is like you don't you have hypomanic episodes with depression. Remember, I said mania then goes into hypomanic, manic one, manic two, manic, then just complete, just then breakdown. Um, so bipolar two is you have clear hypomanic episodes, but no mania episodes. So you get this fluctuation uh, kind of damage. And then classic bipolar one is when you have full, any evidence of a full manic uh, episode. So then there's just scriptures about what constitutes a hypomanic versus manic episode. Um, so to me, the, 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 our a complex adaptive system has all sorts of different um, processes that are constantly in imponent process. You mentioned the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system. 
you know, neurons themselves, active, uh, you know, activators and inhibitors at its foundational ground. I mean, it's the first uh, Freud is studying this in crabs and lobsters and like, look at the whole fucking system. <laughs> it's like, that's where everybody gets the whole kind of like drive defense thing is an activation. So things that are engaged in ideally a healthy opponent process, the influence matrix, power and love, how do you navigate that? Autonomy and dependency, how do you navigate that? You do that healthy. Okay. So how do you navigate positive and negative affect? How do you approach things that are good and, and holding these uh, issues in on to me, one of the most important ideas about coherent, integrative, healthy is when the two opponent processes work together and synergistically complement each other. So you basically get maximum flexible functionality. Sometimes, however, they pull against each other in very, very strong ways. And then they fight deeply against one another. So I love you one minute and then I hate you the next. That's unbelievably radical. Like, like I really like you, but here you annoy me sometimes. Can we work this out? That's different. Okay. So, but with the, um, certainly then you get in, uh, basically what I see in a lot of individuals is um, there are lots of reasons to believe that body system will cycle between gas and in a way that's confusing, okay? And people can track that and see that in their body. I wonder about, you know, there are lots of reasons why you would basically have somebody be a little moody dispositionally. You can wonder what's happening and historically, how do they relate to these particular kinds of feelings? If you have a naive identity, okay, who's vulnerable to what my mentor would call black and white thinking, um, you know, feelings are thoughts, etc. It's very easy to see how you can get people splitting on these kinds of issues, whereby as things go and you rose colored glasses on, then all of a sudden you get all excited and you justify that. and, And then you're creating images and expectations. And that's very, very optimistic and hopeful. The flip side with pessimism. Okay. Um, and you can watch yourself. It's very clear that we do this. I get up, if I have a really good morning and everything else, you know, I look at the horizon of the whole globe and sometimes I see heaven and sometimes I see hell. My mood basically is like, oh, you know, my unified theory is going to take off. We're all going to knit together a new metamodern game desynthesis and we'll find our way to wisdom and woohoo. And other times it's like, oh my fucking God, we're screwed. We're never going to, you know, this is a, this is where fleas on a Titanic and we're absolutely doomed. Okay. And, and so why the world isn't all that different, but they'll project onto it and then I'll image it and then I'll justify it. And that's a particular kind of loop. Um, so if we agree that it's a looping process, now, thankfully, I'm at a place where I can like I attend to that. I understand that. I don't get committed to that in a particular way. I have an observing stream in relationship to that, knows that I will cycle in and out. I'm fine with cycling a little bit through because it gives me these different flavors. I see them as really useful. I think it's very important to see the world as potentially heaven and hell. But if I had these two modes of being that I saw as fundamentally different, that pulled me in radically different ways that hated each other, well, then you have a whole different kind of structure. Panic attacks. I've been watching The Sopranos lately, and which is great because the mob boss is going for therapy about his panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had maybe two or three incidents where I'm like, maybe that was a panic attack. I'm not sure. And yep. some of them it seemed like my system was trying to warn me not to do the thing I was just doing. Yeah. Sometimes yep. I thought, well, for all I know, it's a physiological thing that something went wrong inside, and panic is how you should feel. Yeah. <laughs> um, totally. And then on the, uh, somehow related to that is anxiety disorders yep right social anxiety normal social anxiety 
I don't think people think of me as having much social anxiety, mm-hmm. but very often the people who seem relaxed nonetheless are super sensitive to it. They're that constantly trying to negotiate there around the anxiety, and so they look kind of smooth. Uh, what's the uh, what's your general impression of anxiety disorders versus normal anxiety? What's normal anxiety? Totally. Um, so I mentioned before, so, and, and right now we're going through an anxiety epidemic. So we are absolutely, above, we used to be sort of depression, now anxiety, and in our, in our children, by the way, the mental health epidemic is seen most clearly in the rise in anxiety. Okay. Um, so anxiety, whereby sort of you have fear in the base, anxiety is a more cognitive disorder, uh, disorder, conditioned, felt sense. You could see this in sense, fear normally has a direct stimuli, Anxiety then goes into a felt sense of potential vulnerability. Uh, you're channeling through modeling threat and potential bad outcomes that you're trying to anticipate, and you're running through various kinds of elements. You don't necessarily, when you see the stimulus, you'll drop into fear. It's an anticipation of vulnerability, expectation of problematic outcomes. That you're trying to work through, model, and anticipate and avoid. So that's the um, a general sort of difference, but it's clearly a line of fear into anxiety that then basically is taking uh, the deliberative and justificatory narratives and guiding them through possible threat functions, okay? Um, so it's totally normal. I mean, you know, you go your first day of class as a professor or a student or, or doing anything, you, you're, you know, first day in the psychotherapy office, you wander into a new setting and everything's kind of a surprise. If you're feeling any reason why this would be threatening or vulnerable, the idea that you're creating images and narrative about why that would be the case is totally normative. Um, I can give you a story of somebody's unbelievably low trait neuroticism and low anxiety and how all the fucking problems they had in their life, okay, um, because they were also low conscientiousness and did unbelievably crazy reckless things and didn't care um, and ended up in jail and all sorts of other problems in their lives, okay? So we need this to be able to be sensitive to potential threats. Of course, if it gets out of control and you crack into the classic neurotic looping of a sense of threat, and I justify, oh my God, this is a real problem. And then you get more anxious in relationship to that. You get feedback loops on it. And then people then generalized anxiety is essentially some felt sense of some negative emotion, a secondary anxious that's usually sort of defending against it that then loops a justifying sense. So you're constantly vulnerable. And then you're constantly in this active aroused threat state where under all or most conditions, it has to actually be for six months to get a generalized anxiety disorder diagnosis. Um, when we get into this issue of panic attacks and panic disorder versus, um, and then there, most people have what are called anxiety attacks. So let's differentiate. An anxiety attack is a acute system where you get stressed about something, okay, that you know you're stressed about, and it captures you and engages in basically a form of cognitive hijacking whereby the over, it becomes on the stage, you're totally overwhelmed by it, you justify why it is, and then you can't contain it. And then you secondarily hate the feelings that you're having and you can't believe, and then all of a sudden you essentially are overwhelmed and decompensate. So you're weeping uncontrollably, totally terrified, can't think, blah, 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 can go on for hours, okay? That's what I would, and I think that, you know, that I, I haven't followed DSM-5 nearly as much, um, but basically anxiety attacks are now, I think, are listed in DSM-5. And that's the, so it's a clear trigger. You get overwhelmed. You're already feeling vulnerable. Your exhausted coping resources are, uh, you know, the stressor excesses them and you're the weight of the, of it, you know, causes the system to decompensate and you're just ashamed and out of control and et cetera. Okay. So that's an anxiety attack. What's a panic. So the argument basically is, is that we do have a fundamental sense that we can, the alarm system can go off in our 
um, uh, body that it's a fundamental, fundamental sense of threat of death, craziness, and insanity. Okay. A classic panic disorder, and it's triggered by a panic dis- attack, which is conceptualized by, so there's going to be a physiological um, der- uh, deviation from normal, okay, that signals a possibility of something very dangerous and bizarre happening that then gets identified by the narrative reflective system as, oh my God, what is that? What the hell, is, what is that in my heart? Okay. And then the anxious attention on the physiological symptom then gen- just spreads into the body where the body then feels the anxiety as if it was looking at a bear. Now is looking at the physiological system as a potential indicator of threat. Well, it's essentially a physiological phobia then. So if you have a phobia of the anxiety that then triggers more indications that this is going to be a disaster, either that I'm going to have a heart attack, I'm going to go crazy, I'm going to go insane, I'm going to then have all of these bad things happen to me. So essentially, it's a phobic response to a physiological fluctuation that then gets reinterpreted as indication of death, or usually. And so, and what you basically see in a classic panic disorder, person be going along, they're at the, you know, at the grocery store or whatever, and then they're standing in line, then all of a sudden, huh? And then it feels shallow in their breath and a little flutter in their heart or whatever. And then they have the thought of, oh my God, am I having a heart attack? What is this? <sighs> they get in the car, you know, <laughs> it's like, and they're, and they're just completely caught off guard. And, and the, there's no, because they were just at a grocery store that they're often in, there's no stimuli in relationship to it. So the only attribution is that my body is going through something very unusual and very weird. So they almost always end up, uh, if a full-fledged panic attack attack into then gets a diagnosed panic disorder, the first time, you should end up in the ER if it's a real panic disorder. Because you're really, you basically what's happened is you convince yourself that this is a signal that your body's about ready to collapse or you're about ready to go insane. And it feels completely out of the blue. So you run over need, you know, to an emergency room. That makes perfect sense. And then they do diagnostics on you. And then they're like, actually, you're clean. Um, and so it must have been this kind of loop. And then you then there are good reasons to then bring a, what would be like a cognitive behavioral view on a classic panic disorder um, that sees this as an opportunity to reinterpret uh, the phobia of the physiology. So it's a, the, they blend together definitely, but the panic classic panic disorder is out of, essentially out of the blue, generally triggered by some physiological phobia. Anxiety attacks are, you see what the stimulus is, you want to be able to cope with it, all of a sudden you can't, and then you decompensate, and that will last generally a lot longer, um, and usually you don't go to the ER for it. I, I didn't know. Actually, I will also say, so then there's also social anxiety and social phobia, okay? I mean, these are generally equivalent terms, the modern term social anxiety. Um, so individuals in, with social anxiety relates, by the way, to avoidant personality disorder, uh, but it's basically individuals that experience social contact um, and they can do it sort of generalized any new environment then is seen as a potential threat where people are going to criticize me and that's going to be embarrassing it's going to be i'm going to be defeated i'm going to be irritable in relationship to that way i won't contain it's super um, threatening classically social anxiety then finds itself in particular settings the most obvious is any kind of public display uh, so the idea that then the sh- light of attention will be shined on you and you will engage in an embarrassing act and be completely shamed by it. People get overwhelmed by that capacity and that's, you know, get public speaking. But it's, social phobia is often undiagnosed. Uh, people miss it. They ge- miss it for generalized anxiety. It's really something I teach my students basically. You want to be able to 
differentiate and hone in on sort of classic social anxiety, social phobia thing. Um, subtle energy. If you describe subtle energy work to somebody who's maybe high trait, <laughs> they might worry that you're a psychic vampire. <laughs> <laughs> because you're uh, concerned that you're feeling into and being nourished by the vibratory allure of other people. But it always seemed to me in terms of spiritual practice that when you're doing it consciously, it's usually beneficial for everyone involved. And where I've personally experienced a draining effect that I might call psychic vampirism mm. is around someone who I might describe as narcissistic. Yep. Right, which is sometimes grandiose, but not always grandiose, right? Sometimes you're dealing with a seemingly very nice person talking about very nice things, but they're sealed in an airless loop of self-justified personal experience that is just soul-crushing even to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> yeah. And and to some degree, you know, from the spiritual perspective, um, there's widespread low-level narcissism just by having us human egoic psyche. <laughs> when is when is narcissism a, a diagnostic problem? When is it clinical narcissism? Um, you know, the, the, that's a that's certainly a good question with all these issues. You know, what when do we where do we draw the line? And it's a very very complicated, uh, and I don't think it receives enough. You know, what's clinically significant? That's it, and it's basically this judgment line. And much of it is like, well, do you have problems or not? And with something like narcissism, it's a very complicated, you know, um, like I got into a debate with um, uh, Alan Francis a little bit on the online and, um, and a few other people about what is, what's a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, okay? Uh, like, for example, the, the real argument that Trump shouldn't have the diagnosis, which you could argue, but at the same time, as I pointed out, if Trump came into any set, setting after, say, he lost the election, was like, oh my gosh, I'm reflecting, I'm not happy with my life. I'm wondering where I am and became dissatisfied, we would definitely give him a narcissistic personality disorder. So that's interesting, isn't it, right? It's like, if he, as long as he's fine and completely defended and keep doing Trump algorithm, it's debatable. But if he then got insight from a psychodynamic perspective, felt some you know shame or, or self-consciousness, which he wasn't really capable of before, as he does that, we now he now meets criteria because he's in distress for it. <laughs> Right. So these are, you know, huh, that's interesting. From a psychodynamic perspective, we now we would say that I would say that that's actually that's moving in a healthy direction. There's actually a probability. Of course, that gets into the whole values about what is human functionality. I mean, Trump looks at me as like, who the fuck are you? I'm goddamn president. You know, it's like, well, it's complicated, you know. Um, so certainly egocentrism uh, is, a, is a pretty ubiquitous developmental dynamic. You know, kids are, uh, you know, and we're all definitely vulnerable to seeing the world through our own lives. One of the biggest skills we have to consistently practice, even by the way, for people who are other centered, they're often very self-absorbed. They're constantly thinking about how other people will see them and they're trying to attend others, but it's through their own needs to be protected and to be belonging. So, well, you know, we carry a particular perspective on the world, ours. <laughs> That's what we see because we get the sense that we're sort of on stage and that everything, you know, so often, and this, I'm very vulnerable. It's, oh, we, this happened, and then did everybody see me <laughs> and what it was that you know I didn't? Everyone's like, no one's ever paying attention to you. <laughs> and I was like, you are on your own stage. So you get egocentric kind of tendencies, which are natural and inevitable. Then individuals get sort of self-absorbed and critical, and they feel vulnerable, and then they're just flooded with that kind of focus. Um, and then a lot of bit, just on a developmental line, the capacity and the narcissistic sort of personality dimension is like, hey, 
you get the message that your ego needs to justify why you're important, superior, and better than everybody else. And we all, especially our society, sort of cultivates aspects of this. They want to kind of create this. People then, for a whole host of different reasons, would then get, you know, more and more. Where is the line with regards to its dysfunction? Um, there is no, that's a judgment call that requires societal values, it requires clinical judgment, requires levels of distress. Um, it's generally made just sort of conventionally. Hey, if you're here and you have problems, um, we have an issue. I did a blog on Steve Jobs uh, on this issue also. Was his narcissism justified uh, in the sense that he was a pretty narcissistic guy, could be very controlling, um, yet he was unbelievably a genius, you know, and he transformed the world. And this dynamic about what, what should we tolerate in somebody who's so unbelievably capable in certain regards. And yet you talk to his daughter and, you know, she's paid a serious price for some of those dynamics. Does it, and, does it matter if it's justified? Like, that's an interesting question, you know, because they're like, I don't know, what do they say? Uh, it, you know, you're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. But yeah. are, are you still paranoid if, if it's justified? <laughs> like, when, when does justification undermine the diagnosis? When does the justification? justification uh operate independently of that you're still messed up even if it's justified totally um well this is i mean i think that's a that's a great question and and, and the answer i don't have an answer for that i think that has to be contextual i don't think that there is a great answer you know so for example i mean sometimes i'll do it this way so you're on the train to auschwitz and you're like really happy you know you know like woohoo and it's like you know that's fucked up you know they you know if you're miserable and scared and brutalized and about ready to you know even your family gonna die i mean what we would want to see i you know let's say you know hey did you hear yeah last night my whole family was killed in a car accident but oh well i'm here for the podcast you know how do you how do you diagnose a depressive uh, or a neurotic on the train mm -hmm. to auschwitz (laughs) right right depressive reactions that's that's the context so so to me the red line the red circle the the seventh branch is the well-being and the outer circle is your worldview ideology and values which then basically has to inform how what is optimal you know normative functioning which we absolutely you know you just need to own part of that's going to be constructed you can develop decent justifications for certain things part of it's going to reflect a particular value structure you know so me i'm kind of like a egoic psychodynamic rationalist so sort of like okay i have some notions in relationship to how people might live blah 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 you know if you're an unbelievably creative shamanistic artist there's going to be different kinds of things that you're going to value in relationship to this you know if you know you're jordan peterson depressive you know uh and the, oh my god the challenge of life and the and the and the need to pull the sisyphus rock back up to the hill and clean your room and and live that life in a particular way then that that you know that feeds into his architecture and he's going to be much more sort of sympathetic to some of that stuff or more like that gives life meaning for me it's sort of like hmm, that's a lot of suffering maybe unnecessary so we're all going to have to have conversations societal and individual conversations and it's an inner process um, about where we want to put what's responsible uh, for it um, we just reviewed the movie ordinary people i don't know if you ever saw that movie 1980 movie it's a great movie in my opinion um, and in terms of it's a great movie for psychopathology it tells the story uh, about upper middle class family in Chicago, the two sons, uh, they go out, it's a horrible um, storm, the boat tips over, the older son dies, and then it picks up the story with the younger son having all sorts of anxiety, PTSD, depression, makes a suicide attempt, and then he ultimately finds therapy and he grows. But you watch it and you say, well, where is the psychopathology in the family? Okay, like what's justified? And of course, at a checklist, 
He's made a suicide attempt. He's clearly depressed. He clearly has PTSD. And we have all of our DSM diagnosis. But the movie shows the family. And, and the, the picture that the, it basically shows is how we try to conventionally say what's okay. And the mother then plays a particular figure, basically regulating her persona in a hyper-conscientious sort of obsessive compulsive sort of way where it's like, oh my God, we just need to perform in a societally approved way. You see her mother and you regulate and control all the animalistic and heart impulses that make us primates. And you just try to erase all that stuff from mother's perspective. The message of the movie is, oh my God, we actually need to connect to our heart and body. When we do, we can afford a coherent, existentially real life uh, experience. But what you then see is as he does that, then the mother and the whole family sort of decompensates in a, in a particular way. So then we ask, what is, where is the psych, what's justified? Was his injury, a injurious expression really justified based on the family di- and societal dynamics? That's part of the message of the film is like, fuck, man, we really do a lot of ego repression, you know, and we need to get back in touch with the soul and get in touch with our emotional selves. You know, Ian McGilchrist been making, you know, making this case very prominently now. And I believe that, but this issue about, well, was it justified that he was felt really alien and this is in some ways, and he was suffering. So then, so you have to kind of get in this, well, yeah, what is societal, what is the system, what kind of is optimal functioning? How can we talk about values that we can, you know, really believe in and move towards and make ethical decisions around? And, you know, it's messy and complicated shit. In, in past discussions, we've talked about my sense of the, of the transition phase from sentient to sapient creatures, right? And this sort of general idea of a mirror phase, mm-hmm. uh, cognitive capacity to make a map of the individual body as a mm-hmm. neurophysiological operating system that gives us self-awareness as a unit apart from the environment and the species and also an increased self-coordination and self-tinkering affordance. Beautiful. Um, but uh, that self-mapping is not based on comprehensive objective information about our body. <laughs> we form it out of Frankenstein fragments of true and false self and other experience. So we get people who suffer body dysmorphia, mm. uh, a mismatch between their map of the body and their mm. actual body. We also get gender dysmorphia, where we have a mismatch between the genetic or genital situation and the feeling of identity in the individual. Sure. Are, are these in the same category? Are they fundamentally different? What, what's up with dysmorphias? Ah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they're, well, uh, uh, this is a complicated issue. <laughs> Way to lock me into this one. <laughs> okay. Um, so body dysmorphia, to me, basically, is, is going to be kind of a combination of uh, low self-esteem, self-consciousness, um, and probably an obsessive glitching, okay, um, combo. So basically, you know, hey, I feel vulnerable. I, I need, you know, there's what's going on. Um, and then all of a sudden you have a distortion around a particular feature that you obsessively ruminate around uh, and then channel a lot of your, um, the reason my world is bad is because of this uh, and then create, you know, essentially a loop around that, um, I'm guessing that there would be some, you know, quirky perceptual dynamics in relationship that associated with an anxious, you know, sense of insecure attachment and vulnerability, and then defensive justificatory dynamics that basically allow the explanation for all my problems through this kind of thing. And there's a redirection. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's possible and, and indeed probable that certain cases of 
you know, dealing with, uh, say, trans and conditions uh, would really manifest that. And when you get into that, the reason this is really tricky is then you're like, well, now what we're really seeing is an identity that is not able to cohere and integrate, hunting for rationalistic defensive justifications and then channeling that into a particular way where then the felt sense of dysmorphia is really a manifestation of not being in touch with the self in a particular way or having defense psychodynamic defenses that's a i think there's some truth to that it's also a complicated claim to make um the reason then that i would say there i believe there's a pretty classic um architectural understanding of trans uh experience in a in what would be called sort of a classic trans type okay so, and when I make this point, uh, is like when you take a Utah perspective, people always think biology versus, learn, you know, nature, nurture, biology versus society. We have sex and gender, um, all of these, these two categories. From a Utah perspective, these two categories have just totally missed the boat in terms of the schematics we want to do. Um, we want to understand ourselves as biological organisms at the level of life, Okay. We understand ourselves as mental animals at the level of mind. That's a totally different level. Okay. And then you have uh, a culture justificatory person structure. So it's three levels, not two. Okay. That, that set the stage for our development. If you use the three metal model, then at the level of, um, and believe which certainly like I do, and I make the argument that the mental structure, okay, then comes online differently than the genetic, than the genital structure, but essentially through the development of the primate, you can then argue that there are archetypal masculine and feminine structures in our nature that orient us towards dispositional ways of being in the world that are felt as feminine and felt as masculine prior to the gendered constructed roles that justify one or the other. If you, if you agree with that, then you can actually have a clear archetypal pattern of what a trans individual might experience. And I've talked to individuals that this resonates for. So you would have the genetic structure, uh, say an XY chromosome that gives rise to a male body. And then as the neurological architecture is developing, you know, you get a neurohormonal structure that then creates the brain-based architecture in a much more archetypally feminine way. We can talk about what that would mean, but there are lots of different reasons to believe that there are socio-emotional feminine primate tendencies. Just look at the primate kingdom, okay? And then that individual again gets born into a society that has justificatory structures, identifies um, at this time he as a male, and then as she gets, he gets, she gets socialized, into a place where they start to be able to reflect, they identify very strongly with the feminine energy, as it were, and then recognize that their psychic structure is out of whack with both the biophysiology and the socialized gender roles that they've been given, and then realize that they actually need to shift the gender justification to be in line with the feminine, and then perhaps get surgery or whatever to bring their biological structure in line. So in that case, what you basically would have is, yes, you'd have a misalignment that would explain then the body gender dysphoria that would then afford the capacity to transition to then afford alignment, which would then afford much more coherent integrative structuring uh, through the various layers of the living organism, the mental animal, and the justifying person. Yeah, there's, this is a complex overlapping area, and it's also sort of you know, it's one thing to feel you're different than society's stereotypes of your gender. It's another thing to feel you're different than your physical body's layout. There's some similarities and some differences. 
And in that last case, obviously, socially, people are very divided in how to address a person who feels differently than the physical layout of their body. Should they psychologically learn to accept their body as it is? Uh Or should they be free to modify their body to fit their sense of who they are? And which one's going to afford them the most potential for alignment and growth? But the the very principle of coming across situations where there are options diagnostically is interesting. Uh, It sort of leads into, uh, you know, sometimes people talk about postmodern therapies, Uh which are a little bit like um, you you have choices. You're almost like the the client. It's you're a customer. You're Uh coming in and you want to purchase a particular effect and you want it to be done fairly quickly. Yep. Right. NLP and hypnotherapy and cognitive rescripting. I want change X, Y, or Z. And it's a bit like cosmetic surgery where it could be a necessary skin graft, mm-hmm. but maybe you just never like the tilt of your nose and it's nobody's business that you want that change. So um, what's your sense of the, of the, of what pathology means when it comes to voluntary options for changing ourselves and the sense of the, of patient as customer who wants to be cognitively or behaviorally modified from something that they're treating as a pathology, whether it is or it isn't. Totally. <clears throat> so let's just, you know, the, we'll, go, we'll go modern and then postmodern and then metamodern. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, so the modern, uh, you know, modernist idea is that science figures out a way to decipher what is empirically true, does empirical validation, and then the experts know the categories of nature that afford them realization of what's actually going on. So you, as the patient, client, whatever, certainly not a customer, you go to the expert, you get the label, they tell you what it is because they have studied the set of categories and decided and figured out the essential features of nature so they can say, oh, yes, you are this, okay? Um, And that then affords with mod, you know, when I say modernity, the idea that, oh, we figured out reason and then through reason, we can figure out truth. And now we have truth systems that correspond to reality in an essentialist way. And then we can be confident in those and apply them. Okay. It's simplistic, but that's basically a modernity kind of a set of assertions. Then you get postmodern kind of coming along from a Utah perspective, essentially the postmodern lens is all of those claims are embedded in a system of justification where you have investment and influence dynamics that are actually playing a huge role, power dynamic about what's getting legitimized, what's getting normatized, what is possible. And essentially we live in an unbelievably flexible, imminent narrative perspective, whereby we decide to build stories about what the hell's going on. And those stories certainly have consequences, but the stories in relationship to essential reality, that is, you know, some absolute independent, verifiable thing, independent of the way we talk about the world, is no, it is, it's constituted by the language games that we play. Ergo, if you come in and think I have all these problems, it's like, yeah, we will grant you whatever problem you want. What's your disorder of the day and what fits your narrative and what then is most empowering for you in relationship to this? Um, because it's all fluid uh, in terms of what is real relative to its contextually, socially constructed justifications. And we just want to do it in a way it's really just sort of this pragmatic, quasi-nihilistic kind of structure. It's like, well, we're going to pick the one that minimizes suffering, gives you the most empowerment, and there it is, okay? And, you know, the, as in an integral, post-integral, you talk fashion, metamodern fashion, we say, well, they're both partially true, right? You know, um, it absolutely is the case, as far as I'm concerned, that scientifically we know we're primates, okay? And we can say by primates, we're going to care about a lot of things, like the whole architecture, like of, say, the influence matrix, 
We didn't come around and invent that. When my daughter wrote a little story and then dreamed that she would be the next Twilight author at 12, the idea that she would produce something and then wish for other people to want it, it wasn't because we told her, oh, it's good when other people like your work. You learned that and we constructed that. We could have told her that you wanted to be homeless and be rejected. No, the influence matrix architecture of the system is part of our fundamental natures. We didn't construct that. You know, I believe there are masculine and feminine tendencies in the world that certainly are greatly influenced by the role systems and justifications, but they exist prior. I mean, only 50,000 years ago, we were inventing these. Utah says, hey, there's massive dynamics of justification. And then there's the TOK angle that situates it into a more natural science perspective. Um, So what I would basically say is a lot of what we do is creative fictions, okay, in, in our world. A lot of what we do are build quasi-useful justifications that are not well thought of as correspondent theory of truth, but more useful pragmatic stories we tell ourselves. That's the postmodern frame. That's a very important frame to have. But to say that that is foundational and that's only what it is and that we can reduce knowledge to the philosophy of language and social construction is grossly misleading and dangerous. Um, That needs to be tied to some other kinds of uh, tethered to other kinds of realities. Um, and so I often talk about the, us as primates and persons. The persons is the socially constructed justificatory narrative. We want to make sure we realize that those systems of justification are very flexible. A lot of them are quasi-delusional fictions <laughs> that we sort of live through. We want to be able to get adjacent to them. That's what I see a meta-modern kind of like, oh, you're this, I'm that, okay, cool, whatever. We can twi- switch at some level, but not as a, that's the whole picture. We also need to recognize that, okay, we are primates. There are certain kinds of constraints that are placed on it. We better get our natures somewhat right, or else the alienation between our narrative and our experience is going to be so dramatic, we have serious problems. So we have to get that relationship right. Um, I don't think the modernists or the postmodernists quite get it right. Maybe the metamodernists will. There's a whole set of places I'd like to go in you know, that begins with relativity of diagnosis and then moves into uh, transnormal pathologies, both the things that can go wrong in, mm. in transnormal break, breakdown versus breakthrough, but also the mm. ways in which uh, advanced forms of being can retroactively make normal human activity pathological and where that might be justified and where that might be unjustified. I'm aware we've been at this for two hours. <laughs> Uh, I have another person I need to talk to in yep. 10 or 15 minutes. So what if we call this part one? Ah. <laughs> uh, and then we, we do another one of sort of uh, more advanced uh, upper end diagnostics. Beautiful. Any justification to talk to you, Layman? Uh, a good way to I, I think this is great because I think uh, a lot of fans of you and fans of you talk want to hear uh, some more in-depth specifics around diagnostics. And I think, I mean, a lot of people, this is what I can when am I going to have the Utah DSM and hold it in my hand? You know, <laughs> I think right. there, there's, a, there's a real possibility there for some kind of knowledge set that's super useful to people. And I so think. what you're what you're getting from me is where I was, you know, 10, 15, all of this 10, 15 years ago. And I do. I really think this is important advances. Um, the issue also is, is that sort of like we also need to think societally. You need to think about wisdom. We need to think about what, what we fundamentally value and then create these dialectics between, oh, okay, what is an integrative, coherent, integrated, pluralistic society that has core values that serve as a lowed star, afford ethical decision-making, 
grants the multiplicity of pluralities and at the same time can also afford us a lens that understands what psychopathology is, psychiatric pathology in particular kinds of ways. And that's definitely part of the project. So I appreciate the opportunity to kind of come back to my clinical psych days when I've been metapsych wisdom energy recently uh, and share this kind of perspective. Um, because this, this to me is what, you know, if we're going to have this sort of like sacred, natural kind of blend of spirituality, quasi-theology, applied meta-psychology, et cetera. It's, these are the conversations we need to have. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, that's great. Now we can, uh, we can bank on all this stuff and we can try, we can look at the, the supernormal leading edge of what pathology means next time. Beautiful. <laughs> all righty, friend. Really Here's, enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll care. set that up. Always a pleasure, Greg. Absolutely. All right. Take care.